Thanks, Dave. There's nothing worse than messing things up for the for the worship team, so I'm sorry. We can uh, we can blame Zoom, right? Richmond isn't the kind of church that you imagine, like, I don't know. My fondest memories about being here is that this is not a church about the stage. And so there was a natural part of it. It's like, okay, maybe I'll stand on the floor. Maybe I'll stand at the back and sit next to Tori or, you know. This is the kind of church. I love, I love that about the, the character of this community. As you heard, my name is Andrew and I was on staff here till a couple of years ago when Broadview Baptist pinched me. Um, and Richmond is always going to be a part of our heart and we, we, love, um, we love this community dearly. Um, came last year, I was, if you were there for um, Elliot's 10th anniversary, I was that guy who was kind of like a bumbling mess and shaking. I was fine until I started like thinking about all the incredible things that um, Richmond has meant to me and it just hit me like a wave and then Elliot looked me in the eyes, I couldn't do it. Um, but yeah, so I've been at, um, at Broadie, at Broadview Baptist um, for the last three years since leaving here. And so it is like when I got an email from Melinda, I was genuinely surprised and blessed and excited. So hopefully I do it justice today. I'm really happy to be here. Um, my family, um, Rachel and the kids send their love. Some of them were seriously contemplating coming with me today. Um, still kind of grabbing onto me as I was leaving the door. Um, but Rachel is, is gathering leading at Broadie today. We're doing our church life survey and a whole bunch of stuff over there. So she couldn't get herself extracted to be able to come here. Um, and in exciting news, she's just come on staff at Broadview, which is awesome. Um, as a pastor, um, Broadview's first ever female pastor with a focus on community engagement. Does that sound a bit like Richmond? It does, doesn't it? Um, so that is really cool to have her in that role that is purely looking outwards and it's really exciting. But it is wonderful to be back here, to be back amongst family and a real honour to be asked to preach and be part of your series for Lent. Um, hello Zoom people, it is great to have you as well. Hopefully that's all working fine. Um, it's good to not be the pastor. I don't have to think about whether or not that's working or not. I can just be like, it's working, it's working. Um, but it's great to be a part of this series for Lent where we look at week by week the Lenten practices that the church, and I mean by that the universal church, the church that is the expression of the faithfulness of God since Jesus came, um, that the church has commonly practiced throughout generations as they prepared themselves for Easter. And if you've been here or if you've been online um, the past couple of weeks, you would have heard Josh talk about the practice of confession of confessing to one another um, and to God about your life and your heart and your faith. It's a recognition of sin um, and a seeking of forgiveness. I'm not sure what Melinda spoke about last week because it's not online yet, but I believe it was fasting. Is that right? Did she speak about fasting? Anyone remember? Yes, fasting. And um, the practice of abstaining from something to increase our dependence on God. This practice where um, we remember all that Jesus gave up for us, where He didn't, as the Philippians 2 see, says, see equality with God as something to be grasped, but He became a servant, obedient even unto death. And in both weeks, the challenge was a practical one. And there was time given for confession. And last week, there was the opportunity even to abstain from something. What was it last week that you abstained from? Because in the notes, it said potentially coffee. Is that what happened? Because that's not right. You know, like I, I'm all for getting into this, but I'm not sure that coffee is that level that we're talking about, um, especially for Richmond. 
coffee. Uh, maybe you have abstained from coffee during Lent and awesome. That is like, honestly, God is clearly going to do something amazing in you if you're willing to give up coffee for this time. Maybe I should be giving up coffee. That sounds probably right. Today we are looking at another one and one I don't think gets talked about often enough. It kind of gets talked about a little bit in the kind of gap of giving, um, but we're talking about almsgiving. Arms is not a word that we really ever use. I kind of, when I think about the word arms, I kind of think of arms for the poor, like kind of like in some medieval movie where someone's like calling out and begging on the side of the road. Um, but the root of the, the word in Hebrew and Greek means mercy. It means pity. Um, almsgiving is known in the traditional church or in the Catholic church as one of the big three pillars of Lenten practice. There's prayer, and there's fasting like we spoken about last week and then there's almsgiving. And these are actually all spoken about in a row in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. And so traditionally, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for the church throughout all the generations. But what really is it? Almsgiving can simply be translated as giving charity or being or, or showing deliberately, intentionally showing generosity, making a gift of alms, mainly physical gifts, yes, intended to help others. And Lent is the time where the different intentional and shared practices help us in our own formation of what it is to live the Christian life, what it is to follow Jesus, what it looks like, what it, what it feels like, what the practice actually is worked out from us like. And so these Lenten practices, they're not just supposed to be, as you would have heard, part of our lives for just these 40 days, but they're meant to influence our lives beyond Easter. They're meant to become a part of our lived reality, a part of our experience of discipleship, of apprenticeship to King Jesus. And so while we talk about almsgiving being important in Lent, it's only because it's important to our discipleship. It's only because it's important to our lived experience of that discipleship, of what it is to follow Jesus. And so before we go any further, I want to confess something. One of those Lenten practices that we've already heard about, so, so thanks, Josh. I want to confess something. That almsgiving for me isn't always the easiest thing to do. And maybe today that's the same for you. Maybe almsgiving that kind of level of charity isn't always the easiest thing to, you, to do because almsgiving challenges the heart of the giver in incredible ways. Now, I'm a kid who grew up with three other siblings. I call myself three of four. It's a bit of a tricky reference, so I'm apology about that. But I am kind of number three in a line of, of four. And I grew up in the booming southern suburbs of the 80s and 90s in and around Hallett Cove where the class sizes were massive. The school was continually exploding. More and more um, transportables were bringing, being brought in almost every term, taking over the Oval. A school that went to be designed for 300 was quickly closing on 1,000 kids. And I definitely didn't live in an era where everybody got to play in the sports team that they wanted to, in cricket or football, which was the thing that I liked to do. Only the best made the grade. Or you ended up in kind of the B team with all the other people that really didn't know what they were doing. And you knew that you were in the B team or you were in the white team. It was blue and white. You were in the white team, which meant that you were in the B team. And sometimes you could sit on a bench for a whole game. 
there was no rules around, oh, look, every kid has to play, every kid has to have a go. You know, I've become the uh, senior cricket coach of Vale Park Primary, you know, in my endeavour to continually connect with our community around Broadview. I had my first game yesterday and we won, which was awesome. Um, but, you know, there's this constant thing about, well, they've, they've faced enough balls, we need to let the other person face some balls now. Yeah, but they're hitting sixes. Do we really want to stop? We're going to win if we let this guy keep playing. That's how it was when I was in the 80s. Now it's very different. But I grew up in that kind of environment and my little sister is the quintessential youngest child and I've got to be careful not to slam on her too much. It's very easy. Um, which all that can mean. And I am not just the middle child, but I'm the middle, middle child. My younger, I'm not even the firstborn son. My younger sister and I were especially competitive and we kind of still are a little bit now. And, and so what that has meant is that at dinner time, my kids now are amazed at how fast I can eat. And it's from years and years and years of practice because being first meant you got seconds when the food was good. Being first meant you got the best piece of dessert if there was some. And being first meant you got to leave the table and then potentially go to the second room where you can grab the tiny television and you get to pick the show. That's what it meant. So competitiveness was a practice and a habit of my childhood. You wanted to get to the car first to get to the front seat and we would all fight over the middle seat in the front row of our six-seater Falcon for holidays. Who wanted to sit at the back where there was no air conditioning? No one. And when one of us had good news, the other one would love to spill it to everyone else. They would love to spill the beans, including one memorable time where I was on a TV game show as a kid on Channel 9 and I won. We got home and before I could get out of my seat, my sister sprinted inside and told the whole family before I could do it. These are tiny little habits of competitiveness. Clearly I'm over it. The tiny little habits of competitiveness, that desire, of desire, and, the, and you want to have that victorious sense of achievement, even in the small things. And even though half of these were sometimes just in jest, they, they run opposite to a posture of charity. You want what you want. You take what you can get. They run opposite to generosity because they kind of build in you a fear of missing out. And achievement, material possession, victory, these things so easily entangle ourselves, entangle themselves in us, even just a little, with our own sense of self-worth, with our own sense of identity. And so while the idea of practices of charity and generosity can possibly seem cliche. And possibly they are cliche because it's something that the church has always done. Something the church has always expected. But if maybe if we are honest, this posture of charity, this choice to practice charity, cut across, if only a little, some of the ways that we hold most dear. Maybe even it cuts across our own sense of identity. And I'm happy to confess this to you. I'm happy to if in doing so, it allows the Holy Spirit to change me. If it allows the Holy Spirit to speak to you, maybe about your identity and what you're holding on to. I'm happy to confess it to you if it makes me and if it makes all of us more like 
Jesus. And I think there are four reasons for us not only to practice almsgiving for Lent, but throughout our lives. And the first one is simple. The first reason is obedience. Jesus told us to, but the Bible tells me so. The Bible and Jesus speak about giving or giving alms a lot more than maybe we realise or we feel comfortable with. In fact, generosity is not only talked about, but it's actually linked to a promise or linked to a reward. Hear these words of Jesus talking about giving alms from the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. He says, Be careful from verse 1 not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as hypocrites do in synagogues or on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And there is another like it from Luke 6, where in, in verse 38 it says, Give, give, it's pretty blunt, give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. It will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be used, it will be measured to you. Growing up, I would often hear these verses. In fact, I remember even singing one of these verses in a, in a worship song in the 90s. Um, especially the last one. And it was often talked about in church offerings and talked about, and I always kind of felt a little uncomfortable about it. Felt uncomfortable with this idea of giving to be rewarded. But Jesus says, give and God will reward you. And how much you give is connected to how much God will bless you. And being an intentionally generous people is something God has always commanded of His people. From the Old Testament laws of welcome the stranger or keeping a portion of the harvest for the poor or for the foreigner. The commandment to keep that portion can be found in Leviticus 23, 22 and it ends with these words. He says, give a portion. And then he finishes, because I am the Lord your God. He says, leave some in the fields, leave that which you could use and leave it for the stranger Leave it for the poor. Leave it for the vulnerable. Because I am the Lord your God. Because you belong to me. And so I think this leans into the second reason why we should give. We give out of that relationship that we have with God. We give out of the gratitude of who He is. We give out of the fact that we belong to Him. And Jesus says something similar in Luke 12 when He's challenging us not to worry. And He says in verse um, Luke 12, verse 31 to 34, he says, But seek his kingdom, and these things, our daily needs, will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your, position, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we give in gratitude, we place our treasure in God and we receive a treasure that will never fail. 
We receive God's goodness, His kingdom in us, His kingdom through us. And so almsgiving is a practice of gratitude. It's a practice of worship. Our generosity speaks. It speaks of the freedom that we have to give because of who we belong to, because we belong to the King who is pleased to give us the kingdom. We don't have a reason to fear because we belong to the King who gives us the kingdom. This kingdom where God's goodness is present and reigns. And I found this great quote from Jessica Manenkinner who wrote, Choosing to give alms makes a difference for those who give. It is an exercise in detachment, a reminder that money is not an ultimate good. I love that. Money can, in fact, be a distraction from the things that are more important. So giving up some money helps to redirect our attention to what we really value. So in giving materially, in giving financially, it is worship because it's a practice where we redirect ourselves and we place and we offer our gratitude towards God. And worship for the Hebrew people, as I read before, this worship, giving to the vulnerable, they did it because they belonged to Yahweh and for us as God's people now through Jesus, we give too. Because we wanna say that our treasure is not found in material wealth, but our treasure is in what we have found in the generosity and the love of King Jesus. This generosity of God that flows into every part of our lives and follows us into the age to come. It leads us in there, it has created that. So giving alms is living out a practice that actually ties into the first of what Jesus called the greatest commandments. Giving is living out, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. It's living out that posture. It's not just a statement. It's not just a song. It's not just a routine, but it is a physical way of saying, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. I love Him with my all and I just want to live in response to what He has given to me. But of course, giving lives out the second commandment too. Love your neighbour as yourself. These two commandments that Jesus says every law and every prophetic word hangs upon. Almsgiving, charity, generosity is a way of practising so simply these two greatest commandments. And so when the rich leader came to Jesus in Matthew 19 and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? This, this man who was living in a context where he, he knew about the coming kingdom of God. He knew about the life in the kingdom that was to come through the Messiah. Jesus' response is this, if you wanna enter life, keep the commandments. After boldly declaring that he had kept all of those that Jesus then lists, he had not murdered, he had not stole, he had not committed adultery. Jesus then says this in verse 21, if you wanna be perfect, or if you wanna do this with completeness, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor 
and you have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And that leads me to the third thing. Almsgiving is about loving God, but it's about loving our neighbour. It's about giving dignity to those who are vulnerable. It's about the choice to put others' needs before our own wants. We know in that story, if you've read that story from Matthew 19, the rich man actually just couldn't do it. He'd done everything else. He couldn't take that step, that step of obedience to say, all right, look, I'm willing to do all these things that really just affect, affect me internally, but to give up all I had, all the security I'd built up for myself, am I really willing to worship God in that way? And he couldn't do it. You know, giving... Giving is actually a social practice. It recognises the common humanity that we have with others. It recognises a relationship or it can begin a relationship founded on dignity and of justice, on the justice of God. Because it says that we are all equally created by God and equally loved. That God sees all people and that we as His people see them too. And that all people are equally deserving of dignity and support and help. And it's incredible what the act of giving dignity can do to both the giver and those who receive it. What it can change in those who give it and what it can change in those who receive it. What it can change in the systems around, what it can change in communities. Giving dignity through what we do to support others can change things amazingly. One of the things that we've seen even recently is what people have been doing to support people in Ukraine. You know, there are so many systems almost working against us being able to financially support people over there. And so what did they do? Somebody somewhere along the line realised that there was a bunch of Airbnbs over there that of course no one's going to be staying in. But you can directly support the owner of that Airbnb right now by sending funds and booking a date that you will never ever go and sleep in but the money goes directly to that person. It's a small step. And yes, it is just money. But what I love about it is it bypasses the politics. It bypasses the red tape. It directly supports somebody and says, we see you. There's so many stories at the moment out of Poland where people would arrive and people rock up with signs and they say, I have a house that can fit three or four of you who would like to come with me as the refugees come over the border. Of course, that's an even more incredible step. But what I love is that there is a community around the world who has said, we see what's going on there. We are not okay with that. We can't change what's going on between Russia and Ukraine, but what we can do right now is give you dignity and give you support and say that we see you and that you are not alone. How much does that look like Jesus? You know, um, for a few years there, I was going to Cambodia every year um, with a church that I was at um, before I came to Richmond. And one of the awkward things that we would do every trip, um, and Maddie, who's here, did it as well is you'd go because we were supporting World Vision and we had all had World Vision sponsored children kind of in the same area we'd go to their local um, development program and they would bring in the kids that we were supporting it was okay the first time around but as we did it every year it just felt more and more awkward it felt more and more white saviorish it just felt weird and the kids wouldn't know how to behave and you could see on their faces they're wondering if they behave differently what might be do it's it's a, a terrible 
it's a terrible thing after a while to kind of do. And Rachel and I supported a girl by the name of Sophia and she was probably the most shy of all the kids. And I would be the one that would go. And every time I'd go there, the only question she would ask is, where's Rachel? That's it. And so we would connect to Rachel over Skype because Skype was the thing then. And, we would get, and Rachel would get to talk to her, but even then it was a bit awkward. We had gifts for her and we'd talk to her. We'd get to hang out with her for an hour or so. And it, it was lovely to put a face to the name, but it was a little awkward. It was weird. And so the, the final time we went there, just, it ended up being the final time. We didn't know that it would be, but the final time that we went there, we actually um, didn't do that anymore. World Vision, I don't think we're doing that anymore. And we started to feel pretty uncomfortable about it. But instead, through another bunch of other connections, we started supporting a school in the area, same area as where these kids were. And Rachel finally was able to come to Cambodia. She hadn't been able to come the other times because, you know, babies and stuff. Um, and so she finally came and she was really sad. She's like, I don't get to see her. You got to see her all these other times. I don't get to see her at all. And we're travelling in the bus into the area. And I said, I said, oh, I reckon Sophia lives somewhere around here. We'd never, they wouldn't take us to their houses, of course, so we didn't know. So I reckon she lives around here somewhere. And Rachel's like, yeah. And it kind of felt even more like, it hurt even more because it's like, we're right there. She's right here. We can't see her. This is so bad. And the bus stops, the minibus stops. And we open the door. We start walking through what is a massive crowd. And we hear, Andrew, out of nowhere. And we turn around and there she is. This girl who had been so quiet, so guarded, ran to us. Now she knew what Rachel looked like. Obviously Rachel was very recognisable with her beautiful red hair and all that sort of stuff. And she'd seen her on Skype and she embraced us and held us by the hand and was so excited to see us. She dragged us to her family, to all these different, to all the community. She wanted to show us everything. It was completely by chance. In fact, it raised some questions with World Vision who contacted us afterwards and said, how did this happen? What have you been doing? And we're like, no, 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 it was an accident. But what it showed us, what it showed us was by that continual connecting of relationship, by that continual support, that even though that's the way we were doing it felt a bit awkward, we sold the family that we saw them. That there, was, there, was a, there was a dignity about it that went beyond our own understanding. And, and, and it was the most incredible moment for us to actually be able to connect with them on a human level. And we didn't go inside their home, but they took us outside the house. We were trying to be very wary and trying to make sure that we did everything that we possibly could, but we didn't also want to reject the generosity that they were now pouring onto us. You see, arms giving, generosity, even in the small things, it does, it builds relationship, it builds community, it builds connection to others, it supports and lifts the vulnerable. As somebody once said, it builds longer tables and not higher walls, not higher fences. Giving to the vulnerable builds a longer table for them to be included to be seen, to have dignity rather than building a higher fence and pushing people away. Because in Jesus, we have more than we need. And so in giving dignity, it changes both us and it changes others. 
It changes others as we extend our table to them. It builds walls of connection, not separation. And it lives in the gratitude of God, our King, who is pleased to give us the kingdom. And finally, giving in love. I mentioned this before, we represent Jesus. Jesus said, it's by your love that the world will know that you're my disciples. In giving sacrificially, we echo the self-giving love of God and we point to the one who gave his all for us. In talking about giving in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul points to Jesus and said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might be rich. In this world, our calling as followers of Jesus, as the Apostle John says, is this. In this world, we are to be like Jesus. This is how His love is made complete in us. By giving, we represent and we point to who He is. And so almsgiving is obedient because it it responds to the call of God and it is an act of worship and it is an act of loving Him. And it gives dignity and it's an act of solidarity with the vulnerable. Almsgiving supports our neighbour and it looks like Jesus. It radically points to Him. It radically points to our belonging in Him, to His sacrifice and to His grace and to His love. Its practice also displays the radical change the Spirit has brought into our lives. We don't have to live for ourselves because we live for Him and He loves the world. And so today we wanted to give you an opportunity to give alms. For those who um, belong to this community, you would have received an email talking to you about that. Today you would have the opportunity to give money and give food to Westcare. It's an initiative of Baptist Care which feeds and provides safety and community to the most vulnerable in our city, just a kilometre or two away. And so you will have the opportunity at the end of this gathering to give to Westcare today. But more than just a once-off, I want to challenge each of us. Will you make almsgiving, this word that maybe you'd never even heard before, will you make charity your practice? You might be saying to me today, but Andrew, look, I really don't have much to give financially. Things are pretty tight. I understand that. But you have something else. You have your time. You have your talent. You have your treasure. You have all these three things. You know, one of the things that I was most challenged by, and it was actually Mark um, Lacornu, my brother-in-law, I remember talking to him once about doing our tax and things. And he was talking to us, talking to me about offerings and tithes. And one of the things he reminded me of, I think he even spoke about it a little bit here today, not today, in the past. I think I've heard it before on one of the podcasts. But is that... God has given us much more than finance. God has given us our time, He's given us our talent, and He gives us treasure in lots of other ways. You know, one of the things that the last two years have shown us is this is a world that is incredible, can be incredibly isolating. What could you do as a practice of arms? What could you do in giving your time to others to say, I see you, I want to build a relationship with you, I want to acknowledge your humanity and I never want you to be lonely. Are you able maybe to give some of your time this precious thing that we like to say? All of us love to say, what are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. 
How radical is the idea of giving time to others? Maybe your talent. We're all made uniquely in God's sight. Each of us has strengths that others do not have. What talents do you have that you can give to others? In this community, in your neighbourhood, what can you give to others that maybe they don't have the skills to do or the imagination to do? You know, one of the things I find so much joy in is that God has uniquely talented me with an understanding around buildings and design and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not going to profess to be the best at it in the world. But what I do know is He's uniquely built me in a certain way. And I love going to places, to community centres and to churches and talking to them about what could be for them. Not so they can pay me to design it for them, but to help them to reimagine what a space could look like because they don't have anyone in their area that might be able to do that. That's my talent. What talents do you have that you can give to others? Maybe it's incredible food. There are some people in this room that are pretty good with food, aren't there? Maybe it's literally building things with your hands. Maybe it's an understanding of coffee. Maybe it's, which is also amazing. I'm just going to say that again. Maybe there are talents that you have that you just don't even know. Maybe God has gifted you with the ability to pray. You know, all of us are called to pray, but there are some people I know, I've met them, who just have this ability to continually pray and uphold people in prayer. You know, it doesn't matter what age you are. You can use that talent. Maybe it's the ability to just get beside people and listen to them for hours. That's a talent too. Or maybe God has blessed you materially and there are things that you can let go of. There are things that you have in your life that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you about. about. You don't need that. I've got your back. You've got things that you can give in your treasure. What can you do to love other people? Let's pray. King Jesus, I thank you that you are King and that you are pleased to give us the kingdom. You are pleased to give us the kingdom. And so you say to us, we don't need to worry about what we'll eat or drink. We don't even need to worry about what we'll be clothed with. You've got our back. You are with us. But more than that, Lord God, you are renewing the world through your church. And some of us live on the cusp of that renewal where things beyond that point are really, really hard and it can be hard for us to to imagine lives changed in that place. But maybe, Lord, You are calling us to do something radical that would open up doorways of relationship, that would speak of the dignity that You want to give to all humanity, that might change things, that Your Spirit might work in our hands and our feet as we do them. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we are not alone, that you, that you are with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. That you love us, but you love the world too. And so, Lord, we, we, we look forward to being able to partner in what you're doing. And we know, Lord, that it will hurt sometimes, that it will challenge us. But Lord, help us to remember the love. Help us to know the love that you've poured into our lives and how sacrificially you lived that we may be like you in this world. Lord, we thank you that you love each of us. We give you glory and we look forward to 
showing that love to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.